0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. Oh, man, this is the first time that we've ever done an episode two, because there, there was so much in episode one with Joe Foster and talking about his book, Shoemaker, but really about his journey. And so we're really thrilled that we could continue on from where we left off with the last episode which kind of ended with us talking about how Joe talked about going for white space, looking for white space, looking for places that weren't occupied by competitors that were maybe outspending them, et cetera. And they found white space, especially in the aerobics market, and especially going after the women's market first. So Joe, we were in about 1984 or so, I think it was before you had gone public in 85, if I'm not mistaken, but you'd gone from basically three million to a billion dollars in sales. And so if you would kind of pick up from that point in the story and walk us through like what what happened, like what was that like going public, the other things that happened in the 80s and and then when you ended up exiting in, in 1990, we've got a lot more questions probably for this
1: episode than last one, but walk us through. Okay. Well, firstly, finding white space is something exceptional. It's uh, it, well, certainly the aerobics was exceptional because we, we could find uh, our normal white space with something like a cross country or a um orienteering something that was really specific to in, in the uk but when we came to the usa we were determined because of the running market was growing so fast the running market was growing so fast and the, the way that we we looked at how do you expand or how do you uh scale your company now, it's called scale these days we we used to call it how do you grow your company but uh it was either do we do we go into other categories or do we stay in the category win, which was athletics and running, and just expand the territory, go to another territory? And, and America was the obvious one because, unfortunately, with a lot of the other categories, um, ideas were so strong, so strong that that would have cost too much. So, yes, we we found, uh, well, Arnold Martinez, of course, our guy down there in Los Angeles, he found aerobics. His wife was doing uh, these classes and uh, he just wondered what she was doing because she was coming back home, really full of it with her friends, really loving it and enjoying it. And he said, what are you doing? And she said, uh, "Well, we, we're doing aerobics. And, of course, in those days, I uh, we'll just looked up and said, okay, what's aerobics? What's that? And he went down to her next class, and uh, you know, the story goes from there. Of course, he, he had this vision. Why don't we make a, a shoe that's like a glove and make it just for the women, just for girls? Make it in uh, on a, on a girl's last, and uh, and just in women's sizes, which which he did, and I don't know how much of that was real marketing, but for me, Arnold was was an absolute master at marketing, and I think he saw the uh, uh, the possibilities of just making uh, making a woman's shoe. Nobody else had made a woman's shoe. Uh, everything was just sort of either pink and smaller than the than a men's Just make it smaller, but make it pink, but not, not otherwise. No changes. But th- this wasn't just a matter of making a shoe. It was a matter of really creating a different category, and this category of aerobics. Because uh, his first meeting with Paul Fireman was a bit of a, I wouldn't say a disaster, but one where Paul was saying, "Atle, why, why, why would we be making?" Dancing shoes for girls. or an athletics company. Oh, and you know, okay that that didn't uh, that didn't amuse Arnold. And of course, he got it, he went round to the back door to see uh, uh, Steve Liggett and Steve Liggett. He told, he got a better story to, for Steve Liggett, and Steve uh, Steve swallowed it better and, and got him his samples. So then we made this. But of course, as I say, this is a man who was into marketing, really into marketing, and. Uh, he wanted to make a shoe out of glove leather and glove leather doesn't work. Not for shoes. And certainly not in the way they were going to use it because we had used glove leather. In fact, our glove leather shoe, our racing shoe, our world 10, uh, broke the Boston marathon record. I think it was 1968 when Ron Hill won. And that was uh, in a pair of world 10s and that was in glove leather. But this, we were using it sort of inside out. We were using the suede side, so we didn't have to do any preparation to get the adhesive. The adhesive goes into the suede quite nicely, and you can stick a sole onto that. But with aerobics, they were using the skin side and the skin side, had a nice white finish. It looked beautiful. But in order to get adhesive onto that, you've got to take a piece off it. And taking a piece off it, what do you think? You start with glove leather at one millimeter. And one millimetre is, you could almost see through one millimetre. <laughs> it's, it's that thin. And it just turns just like a piece of paper. So taking uh, that surface off, reduced the uh, substance down to about 0.7 of a millimetre. And where you had this hard point where the sole meets the upper, this was just like if you bend a piece of metal and you keep on bending it, it just comes. Well, this is what happened with the aerobic shoe. And, of course, the to combat this, when this is when I learned we were into aerobics. I didn't even know in aerobics at that time. I didn't even know what that was. I was back in the UK doing all the usual things. And uh, so, you know, and I'm saying, well, look, guys, you, you, you can't make shoes out of uh, glove leather. So, okay, they come up with the idea of uh, lining this with nylon, but they actually stuck the nylon to it just to make it so that it wouldn't fall apart. And of course that's that then that stops what leather's really known for, and that's breathability, so it stopped the leather breathing. I'm saying you can't do that stopping so of course, marketing again, what did they do? They punched a whole series of holes in the vamp in the the top of the shoe there, and this allowed the air to circulate so when it comes to you know what uh what does a shoemaker know as against what does a marketeer know, it's always the marketing man wins out because. Marketing is the key, and uh, I I had uh, I had certainly stopped uh, well, be becoming being part of our factory. I'd stopped being part of our factory a long time ago because Jeff ran the factory, and I had to find the pulse for the company. That was me, found the heartbeat, do do whatever, and that was marketing, really. So, so I had been to a large extent involved in marketing the company, but I did not know how to make shoes, and I do remember talking to Paul Feynman and Arnold and saying, you know, this is great. Whatever you do, don't ever learn how to make shoes because, <laughs> because you can sell them better than make them. And, you know, the, the manufacturing process will work its way around once they, once they have the marketing plan. So great marketing plan, just make it for women, make it comfortable just like a, a glove, uh, just in women's sizes. And, of course, that was fantastic. Those initial shoes, they fell apart, but hey guys, we were in America, we're in Los Angeles. The girls didn't worry. They loved the shoes so much that they didn't, they just went out, bought another pair of shoes. And uh, that's okay, that's okay for California, but it wouldn't be okay for the rest of the world. So we had to get that right. Eventually we got that right. We got the tanneries to, uh, to, to, to still make us a nice soft leather but it was more like, it was more like a, a garment leather. It was much plumper, much thicker, and it could, it could take that work that needed to be done on it so you could get the adhesive in it. And of course, uh, then it just started to explode. And good and bad here, because uh, we didn't need any salesmen. At that point, we didn't need salesmen. Salesmen were just going and taking orders uh, if they needed to go and take orders. Because the orders were coming in just absolutely wild, so problem. Problem turns to how do you manage? How do you manage to keep up with that demand? And that that became the problem. The demand, the demand was such that uh, our existing factories just couldn't cope. And certainly when we got to sort of between the three hundred million and going up to nine hundred million. That is when we needed it. we needed so many so much product, and that's when Nike Nike hit the wall. They hit a wall about that time. Running was slowing down; it wasn't expanding as much. And all of a sudden, they were they'd got too much inventory. They had to come out of three factories, just when Reebok needed three factories, and we went into those three factories. And well, yeah, that's that was that saved Reebok really because otherwise, I think. Uh, we would have uh, we would have starved the market. Probably Nike would have woken up to the fact that there's some uh, product out there that needs to be, uh, or there's some people out there need product, and I uh, probably added this as well. So, I mean, since they had the factories, they they probably would have been able to cope with the uh, increased demand. However, Reebok did it. So we, uh, I mean, those it took five years to get to a billion, near enough five years from almost zero to a billion. Um, And those five years are absolutely wild. And luckily, we we didn't even need to to have salesmen. People were just clamoring, knocking at the door. We need, we need, we need. And so it was a matter of keeping up. But we did. We got through that. And of course, by that time, we were coming up very fast and hard on uh, Adidas and on Nike. We were also becoming so popular that uh, we were looking at each other and saying, well, okay, so we're a woman's company now um this is great but we even we started to think will this continue <laughs> you know can we continue to expand our company to uh, scale up this uh, can can we do that on aerobics or on, on women and there was a lot of big a lot of debate went on of uh, well you know are we really a true sports brand if all we do is one shoe or one category we need to get into other categories well, what do we need to get into? Tennis. Tennis, of course, was an individual sport, which was good. And and, and of course, they wore white shoes. And the beautiful thing about this is that we started to make tennis shoes. And I remember, I think it was Paul who came up with the idea. Um, And they put an advertisement in tennis magazines. Uh, And uh, it was, if you don't think that the Reebok tennis shoe is the best tennis shoe you've ever worn. We'll give you your money back and a can of balls. I don't even remember the advert, but the advert was the Reebok put the balls on the line. And <laughs> and that again was was great. And we really got into tennis. So it was then a matter of saying, okay, now we're, we're going into more of a sport where we've got men involved. And uh, so the aerobics also sort of... Uh, We'll say flowed into fitness, and fitness we could bring men in fitness with uh, with different shoes, and so we started to move now into into becoming a, a sports company, say a sports footwork company, uh, instead of just a, a woman's footwork company, and we came into basketball and American football. So it was then it was a question of saying how you know how. How far do you go with this? And uh, we had at that point, we'll say now in the late eighties, late we were at that point where we became number one. We overtook Adidas, we overtook Nike, and we almost became the shoe—the shoe that people travelled in. We, you Reebok, uh, like most of the sports companies at that point, really the biggest sales were street, because that's that's where you get your real volume from—is street. And uh, and I did, do know that uh, it did it did worry Nike. They became worried quite a bit at that point about every time you, you went, got on an airplane, half the people walking through the airport were, were walking in uh, Reebok Classics. Nice There's no, classics so I want to jump
2: in on something there that I'm really curious about. You guys were clearly intentional about how to expand a way or to add after the aerobic shoe, right? Because you couldn't have jumped from aerobic shoe to football cleats. It just wouldn't have worked. And nope. so the from aerobics to tennis, from aerobics to fitness, and then being able to go from there. can you give us a peek behind the curtain of of your guys's plans and intentions there? How much of that was purposely planned out? How much of that was accidental? My guess, like most things, is it's a combination of both. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about that.
1: It's a bit of a combination of both, but, uh... What, what had happened with Reebok is we did realize that, uh, okay, performance that needs cleats, we'll say football, soccer, something that needs cleats, of course, is specific to performance. And what we, we needed, we, what we were producing were shoes that would uh, go street. We would become fashion. So with tennis, a tennis shoe, that's street all day long. Basketball, basketball, again, street. Quite easy to go street with with basketball, so uh, the intention was that okay if we're we're going to, if we're going to go into these different sports. It was what what are we bringing that's different, and what we were bringing is a soft feel, a, a nice soft, comfortable leather. Um, a lot of the uh, uh, we'll say performance shoes and certain tennis shoes in those days were they were quite the, the leather was hard, it, more like a street shoe leather. But it was wide, and though they needed a lot of breaking in, this this I think is what allowed Reebok to come in from aerobics into the uh, into the general field of uh, of sports because we were producing something different. Now everybody has a soft leather because you don't have to break these shoes in. This is this is why, as a street shoe, it works so well. They're so comfortable. So comfort became. Uh, became the byword. How how sort of do we make these shoes comfortable so that people put them on? You no, know, You've not got to play a You don't need to play a basketball. You don't need to play tennis. You don't need to go and get fit. You can just enjoy these shoes because they're comfortable. Uh, they're warm in, in cold weather. You're insulated with that nice thick piece of spongy rubber that's cushioning, him. And, uh, and I think it was momentum. As much as anything, it was momentum. The fact that we're taking so much uh, shelf space uh, in 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 the stores with with Reebok. We're taking a lot of shelf space to so just increase on that by moving from sport to sport. I think that was, uh, um, yeah, it it was a question of saying how do we get into sports. So we had to think about it. We we just had to think about how do you go into these different uh, sports and. Uh, uh, and the obvious one was that we didn't want to go into cleats because we knew very little about cleats at that time. I mean, we did eventually get into cleats for, uh, for American football and soccer. Uh, I think my my biggest uh, regret is that although we were on the biggest market and we were growing and we became number one company, what 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 I don't think that we really realized is that we should have been into soccer. Because soccer is probably the only global sport that that is really international and global and really massive, and we we tried well, I'd been with companies trying to get into America with soccer, trying to grow soccer in america, but soccer soccer was not part of the emotion, you know, the emotion was the way america football baseball basketball there was there was emotion that's what people belong to. Teams followed teams, but nobody followed soccer teams. And I think this is one of the things that uh, that probably our guys who were more thinking in in marketing terms in in the USA didn't think that much of soccer, and because it wasn't there in America, it just wasn't there. And if it was, it was in a very small way. And again, only the girls were playing soccer initially. The girls played soccer, so I think that. Um, and I, I did propose at one time that we should have, we should have an academy, a soccer academy, and put that in Europe somewhere, maybe in the UK, since we were in the UK. But that didn't happen, which I think is one of the reasons that we never really sort of picked up on what I think is probably one of the biggest influences of in, in performance. One of the biggest influences is soccer. If you go, if you look in global, and uh, I, I had. I knew they were doing a hell of a job in the USA. Paul Feynman and the team in the USA were doing a fantastic job. So uh, I concentrated then on going global and getting on all the distribution into Europe, into Australia, into all the other markets, Japan, into the big markets. So that's what I, I started doing and started concentrating on. And initially, of course, Aerobics—that was it. Everybody wanted to get into aerobics. Once it started, they wanted to get in there. The, the next thing, was, of course, was expanding the market. And for me, it was always a question: if we can, if we can get into the uh, into the big team sports in USA, we can expand. We can we can scale our business, and uh, and that's that's what we concentrated on. Just slowly expanding this nice soft leather feel into other into other categories.
0: So Joe, um, I love this journey. I love your transparency on, you know, you had a foundational driver, which was one that we haven't talked about this podcast yet, but fun is like, (laughs) it's your middle name. (laughs) You wanted to have fun, but just even how you kept looking for white space. And, and actually, soccer would have been white space in the United States at that time, yes. for sure. But I want to go back to 1985, I think is when you guys decided to go public in the United States. Can you talk about what was the the driver for that? How did that impact you and what you were doing? You know, talk a little bit about that. And then I want to keep moving and i want to move into as as you grew when you ended up exiting cuz i want to i want to spend a little bit of time on that like what that was like because we've got a lot of you know listeners that are shooting for that date and i know plenty that have that weren't anticipating what's on the other side of that date. And then they kind of felt lost a little bit. And you've done a really good job of not being lost. So I want to hit on that. But let's go back to going public. Talk about what was the driver. Are you glad that they did? Would, would you have done it
1: differently looking back? I'm just curious about your perspective. I, I think on going public, this this was... The, the The company was really being funded by um, by Pentland, by Stephen Rubin and, and by having a a credit line, which, which was which was great. Uh, but I, I think the company became a little bit um just because Stephen Rubin and Pentland, they were the sourcing company, and uh, paul Paul got it into his head really that we we, we need to be independent. We need to be independent of a sourcing company who sort of owned the company because they were they were taking their piece all the time, and um, the thinking was then that maybe we could source it to a better price. You, know, you, you get the accountants looking at all these things, and other people look in and think, "Well, you know, why, why can't we? Uh, why can't we just move around a bit?" And uh, uh, you know, and it was around that time. The people were saying, you know, we go into stores and they think that we're a massive company. And uh, we still think we're small. <laughs> we still think we're just a small company. We're just, we're, we're growing and we're doing really well. But we, why don't we think we're a big company? <laughs> why don't we change our thinking? And if we're a big company, what do we, what do we change? And so I, I think this is what drove the uh, Let's Go Public, I think he drove that because if we're public, we don't need to be with just Pentland and Asco. We can look around. We can we can probably get a better price, and uh, uh, and that you know people accountants were talking about bottom line. <laughs> all, all oh, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and which which goes well. This is it's interesting for me. It was about the um, how do i guess I to say it, it was really about the journey. Not, not about how. Not about the bottom line. The bottom line for me was something that would look after itself if everything else was working hard and doing well. If we were doing our job properly, the bottom line should look after itself. But I did recognize the fact that you take these accountants on, and uh, you, you know, people start thinking of uh, ways of doing uh, things differently. Uh, how can we? Uh, how can we manage this better? So. Uh, And I guess this is what eventually drove me to step back. That, um, you know, I'd been there when there were just two of us. And through all these traumas and challenges that we'd had, now this wasn't a challenge. We were just challenging ourselves as to how we can do this better, that better, how we could make more from this. And for me, a lot of the challenge had gone. A lot of the challenges were going away. We were becoming corporate. We we had accountants, we had lawyers, and a ton of people in between there who would fulfill in uh, orders and and grind the business. But for me, it was much more much more excitement was to be on the market and how do we would we go from here? And uh, those white spaces, can we find any more white spaces? Those, those, that was more. But the, the the sort of the the company seemed to be developing more around the corporate uh, structure. And uh, I, I can understand the fact that we, yes, why don't we uh, have different choices when it comes to uh, uh, sourcing product? And would that uh, would that get us a better price? Would that. So the company starts, started to think corporate and started to think, you know, how we do things uh, and become more me- mechanical. And as it becomes more mechanical, uh, you know, it, I don't see you, you, you lose that uh, that drive because the, the company is still there and had some good people. But then again, some of the good people were probably thinking like me and I know one or two of the good people who decided, <clears throat> no, I can move on. I need to move on now. Yeah. yeah, yeah True. I've got to go through, I've got to <clears throat> too many hurdles, too many hoops to go through before I get to what I, you know, I, I'd like to talk about the next idea. <clears throat> so uh, as things become more and more corporate, so I'm sort of stepping back more and more. Okay, I'm concentrating on global, and we uh, uh, by about 19, I say 88. Before that, yeah, about 1988, we we had a billion sales globally outside of America, and that was good, putting on some good people, and we were going through some some times. Because we were a footwear company, uh, we didn't really have much concentration on apparel. But apparel kept on coming up. Well, you know, apparel is so important for visibility. You you, you can do apparel and you can put your name on it. It can be twice as big as anything you can put on a shoe. So apparel was important. And it was important to look at it from two points one it did give you more uh marketing it did give you more visibility um but the other one is of course it gave you a lot a lot more income you 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 could really scale your company if you did your mark if you did your product uh, right but nobody really wanted to get a hold of that product and so i was uh, i was when i say allowing i i, I was allowing our international manufacturers just sort to produce some things. They could do socks. They could do running vests and shorts, uh, track suits and sweats. They could do that sort of stuff. But when our distributors that uh, I put on in Spain said, well, we want bikinis and we want swimsuits, <laughs> that's when it became a little bit more tricky <laughs> because bikinis, not, not exactly uh, athletics, <laughs> but for them, because Spain in those days was very much a, a holiday perimeter country. So uh, around the perimeter, lots of holiday resorts. <clears throat> a lot of people from Northern Europe would come down into Southern Europe and they'd be on the beaches and this, the, these stores are selling shoes. But of course, they thought they could sell an awful lot more swimsuits and uh, other things that, uh, that would, uh, for them would increase their business. <clears throat> and uh, so I had allowed a lot of this to happen by by saying aloud I said, "Look, guys, you know th- these guys have businesses. They 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 need some more than shoes. They need to expand what they but they're doing." And so it was allowed. It was, but um, it was in in the late eighties when uh, when USA said, "Why don't we just have uh, somebody in charge of apparel?" And I'm saying, okay, that sounds good to me. If we can get somebody to uh, look after apparel, I've got about six people here who are all looking after apparel, but they they're just looking after the different regions and keeping them sort of making sure that they uh, when they had the rebook, they you know they 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 used it in the right way. They, they they didn't sort of just put rebook on in a different font. No, it had, everything had to uh, tell the story, and. Uh, And it was very up because, okay, the obvious place to do this was America, again, because that's the big market. I mean, yes, you could say that uh, Germany and France, they would produce some nice things, but uh, the market was very specific. And so America started to uh, put together a team and uh, put together some designs. Unfortunately, they didn't. They didn't ask any questions. They didn't say, "Can we? Can we talk to your global distribution?" They just thought of America, which is a good thing if you're just thinking of America and just doing things for America. But the invitation was, "Come on, guys! We've got a big, nice, big new range of product. Everybody, came over to. Uh, I don't know. where We went to whether it was into Boston or somewhere else. We used to have some nice places to go to." Um, and uh, this new apparel team presented its apparel. That was great, and we had maybe 30 different countries there now, sort of maybe about 60 or 90 people from these 30 countries in total, and uh, they're watching this nice show of uh, products on the catwalk there. Yes, this is beautiful product, and, and then uh, the guys get up there and said... Uh, Okay, now you've seen the product. Can you place your orders? <laughs> and of course, this was oh, place the orders, yeah is it yeah, okay, so they this sort of looked at the they also got a book with all the bits and pieces in, and um after about an hour, Paul got up on the stage and said you've you've ordered about twenty products each, <laughs> yeah." We're going to production next week, <laughs> and that will be it. And uh, oh, and it was quite a learning curve for our guys because they all came to me and said, Joe, what are we doing? We, this is the first time we've seen the product. <laughs> How can we order any volume on that without, first of all, taking it back and running it through our own marketing? <laughs> so uh, I was also a bit stunned at what Paul wanted to do and what they wanted to do, I said don't worry, you carry on doing exactly what you're doing now and I'll have a word with Paul. <laughs> because Paul just thought that they could just place orders. And it, it didn't take long talking to Paul. He did, he did recognize and realize that this works for the USA. But when you when you think about Southern Europe, they want Italy, they want something in cotton, Northern Europe, they want something warmer, more and more, different things. And I said, so "We really, what you really need to do um, and what we really need to do now in, here in the USA is to have a clothing conference, bring people together and let them talk about next year. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, today everybody recognizes the fact that if uh, you're talking about development of a new product line it takes about two years from people sitting down and starting to think about and design it then they design it then they they go out and sample it and so it takes about two years and uh, paul had tried to get the guys to put it together and do it in about a month <laughs> which uh which i i think paul paul really thought that wherever he went in the world he would see the same product he would in any shop, wherever he went, it would be the same product. And and it took, it took a bit for Paul to realize that uh, what works in America works in America. And only certain things, like, like aerobics and stuff like that, travel without needing to be changed. But even aerobics, we had to have a different last when we went into places like Japan. Japanese women have smaller, wider feet, and... Uh, so at that point, Reebok were learning how to go global, and uh, it was it was quite amusing. We had a lot of fun with it, as you can tell. With we had a lot of fun because we well,
0: were... It's interesting that because I've seen that with other companies, and and it's really it can be the the reverse. People in Japan thinking, well, this is what. Japan works, so it'll work in America. Well, not necessarily, but it is know your audience and it's being collaborative and asking versus being presumptive. And I think Americans can be known for being presumptive uh, many times. So that's an that's an interesting. I want to go back to something that you said about, you know, where it it started becoming feeling more. Corporate, more bureaucratic. That kind of killed the joy for you. And it does for many people. I've heard one founder of uh is Fallon McGillagh, which was the most decorated ad agency next to Widen and Kennedy, which helped, you know, really get Nike more and more. But they said, How big can we get before we get bad? You know, and, and like that's the question, I guess, because you were. Oh, in the billions now globally between the U.S. And and so, you know, what is that number? I'm not sure. But when you hit that point and that stride of feeling corporate, you had to f- keep finding kind of white space for you to where you could still feel like it was a place of fun and enjoyment. Talk to us about the decision when you got up to about 1990 and he's like, you know, it's time for the founder to leave. I want to hear about that. What What were the emotions before, during, and after, and then kind of since that journey?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I I decided to step step back from sort of um, an involved part of the uh, machine. And uh, I was I was really doing more of a, um, an ambassadorial job at the end. Uh, we were going to um, uh, we were going to Monte Carlo, and we were putting on the uh, pro celebrity events. and And th- this was great because you were meeting some some of the stars, you know, the Sinatra, um, and there was there were so many. <laughs> I I I have lists of them but uh, uh Roger Moore and Sean Connery you know, all these people were part of what we were doing um John Forsythe um and, and they were, they were great people so it it was that was a great time uh, but I realized that uh, okay you know is this a challenge or am I just having fun <laughs> and will this last and for me I didn't think that would last for me. I thought this this is good. I'm meeting all these guys, and they're, they're really nice people. But is it is it what uh, I want to be doing? You know, is it uh, really uh, going to places like Monte Carlo? You're having, going to the best places. You're, you're having great meals. You're having great fun. You're meeting some wonderful people. But it's not really it's not really a challenge. It's it's more or less, you know, dude. Do you just die doing this job? Do <laughs> you sort of fade away? Is it is it the end, or am I better just sort of saying no, no? Yeah, you know, it's a younger man's job now, and you need younger men to run companies and to bring new ideas in, you know, bring you know, bring loads of new ideas. So for me, it was uh, it was great, and uh, I'd made a lot of friends. Still have quite a lot of those friends, and but. It really, the company had got, as I say, the company had become corporate. And, uh, you know, we, we had numerous things happening. I know the IRS got involved at one point uh, because they were wondering why. why. Why is Reebok, which we think is an American company now, why is Reebok paying a, a royalty to this British company? Because the brand, surprisingly enough, the brand was still held. And I think it still is held in the U.K., Reebok International has the brand within the UK. And although the shares are now owned by ABG, they were owned by Adidas, and they were owned uh, by Reebok USA at one point. And so we, we had the IRS uh, very much involved, and uh, they were asking these questions. And in fact, I, I do I know it. I had actually retired and stepped back by the time this really became a hot subject. And uh, this guy was phoning my office back in the UK, and I'm in uh, Tenerife enjoying life a bit, sort of deciding to sit back. Um, And so my office phoned me, and I said, uh, pass the message on to the uh, financial people or or the legal people in, in America. See what they say. I think within minutes... They came back to me on the phone saying, Joe, don't ever speak to this guy. <laughs> don't talk to him. You know, you, don't meet him. So uh and uh, you know, and that what transpired is that those guys came across to London and we all met in London and went to the Inland Revenue, the head of the Inland Revenue in London to, to discuss this. And uh the report guys were saying, look, we we need to move the uh uh move the brand to America. And they're asking the Inland Revenue, um, can we do that? And the Inland Revenue said, of course you can do it. Yeah, no problem. Uh, And is well, that costs us money. And yes, it will cost you money because it's an asset that uh, is only in the UK. And if you want to move that asset, it'll cost you money. So the guy said, well, how much will it cost? (laughs) And the Inland Revenue said, well, we don't know. But if you want to move it, you move it. And then we'll let you know.
0: <laughs> oh, that's a bad idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, so it never happened. The, wow. <laughs> the brand is still owned in, in the UK. I think they get around it by uh, doing legal charges and management charges and things like that. So, <laughs> But whilst the, the agreements do send a, a royalty into the UK, I think they manage it. And so the management costs... Uh, And I think there's still an office anyway in uh, in Pall Mall in London. There's still an office there, so uh, those sort of things became quite amusing. But uh, they were like they take uh, they take away from what really you're trying to do, and that is to design and sell and expand and do all sorts of things with your brand. And so for me, it wasn't really an effort standing stepping back. You know, it was like okay, and. and I remember in the first few months of stepping back, every other day, somebody from America would be on the phone, say, Joe, what do we do with this? How do we do this? <laughs> and so it, it took an awful long time for them to sort of um, almost forget me <laughs> and get on with the job because so many references had been coming back. And and so it was, it was quite nice to sort of get away from that and uh, and still be invited to all the uh, trade shows and all everything. I I kept being invited, so that was good to be there. And then you know, just stay as an ambassador. So that was really good. I think that worked out pretty nicely until uh, until eventually uh, the Reebok uh, shares were sold to Adidas. Mm-hmm. And and at that time, I don't, Adidas didn't want to know me. <laughs> so I thought, okay, not to worry we'll wait and see <laughs> so seemed like a very
2: natural time for you to be transitioning out right that it wasn't this burden for you to leave you were able to still be on phone calls for a while can you take us into your your mindset of when those phone calls slowed down right because this has been you for so long even after you step away you're still involved still getting these phone calls as that started slowing and you became more removed from reebok this thing that has been your life for so long take us into that mindset what what did you what were you feeling what were you then getting involved in that type of stuff
1: well I think the transition was away from anything to do with management anything to do with uh, operation and and I and I was going more and more uh, into being an ambassador. Which which was better, and I I felt this was a a better move. So I I could go to anywhere and be introduced, and I I'd be the founder. I could go along. We would do things. So I was doing things more as a founder. And uh, there was also a time when uh, we decided. Uh, I decided. Okay, we'd would, would like to do a bit little bit more. So I got involved in in making bags. You know, one of the things because I was traveling. And uh, we went to Hong Kong and a lot, and um, so I had a word with Paul and I said, Paul, you know, it, it's been good to step back, but uh, it would be interesting now because uh, you know we use a lot of bags, Reebok bags, you know, if and and unfortunately they they used to get a lot of people that, to place an order. If you were given the the, uh, the job of being in charge of bags the people in the Far East were very, uh, very keen to give you a piece of the action, which of course was so um, so wrong as far as the Americans were concerned and as far as the company's concerned, that one of their employees is taking five cents because that factory needed to buy that those orders. And so the factory's buying orders. So that that was a concern. It had been a concern whilst I was there. Uh, so I said to Paul, so you don't have to worry about who's who's working for you, who's being paid. I wouldn't mind uh, looking after the bags and placing the orders and whatever. So we did that. did that for about uh, three or four years, which, again, was interesting and traveling a lot and uh, getting back to America and looking after the bags. But, again, we became... And that, that's I was working with Julia at that time. Julia was working with me to the bags, and we became a bit disillusioned when uh, what we found out is that the teams now there were so many people in Reebok doing different things, and uh, they all had to be a profit center, even the transport. So people arranging the transport from say Korea to whatever had to make a profit. And this was really weird. They tried to make a profit by uh, saying that they were out of time, so it had to come. We're not going to pay the costs, and we're not going to pay the transport uh, because you've gone over time. And we we just became a little bit sort of um, disillusioned on on the fact that uh, again, you were making a product, but there were so many pieces. To this uh, puzzle, that uh, you, that in, instead of actually supplying somebody with a product and they would pay for the shipping, which they should do, they were always trying different ways and means of n- not accepting it. Uh, you, you're going to be late, and they changed things so that things were being changed, which almost made us late. Made or made the factories late. We we didn't suffer anything, like that, but the factories was. You got a bit disillusioned on the fact that uh, it didn't seem to be operating as we used to operate in the, those early days. You want, you want some bags, you buy the bags this I say they they had a the uh, the organization within the company that was arranging transport had to make a profit. and how you make a profit on transport, I don't know, except that what you do is for some reason you find reasons why there's something wrong with a product uh and they used to have to have the product uh signed off by a, a company an independent company but we, we found out that these independent companies were actually charging the factory money to do it and if they didn't pay them they they wouldn't sign them off so you're becoming involved in politics and and, and in the wrong thing so we we eventually gave that up. for saying, no; that's not an area we want to be in. And again, this is all to do with the company becoming really corporate and, and really sort of big. That mm-hmm. it, it goes through all these different processes uh, that really I'm not interested in. Yeah, and and I don't want to go into all, be involved in all these politics. And uh, whilst whilst we thought we were doing well for the company, that uh, you know, we, you know, did no whatever price. We got, we get, we'd be getting the right price, and you know, we'd be just taking a cut out of that, and they knew exactly. But uh, so, you know, I, th- I think for me, coming away from sort of the operating sign and coming away from Reebok in that way w- was a good thing because I, you know, it disillusioned me that people are employed to to be that way. And uh, when you get to a certain size, that's when it's corporate, and that's when all these little things, is, and the politics, start to kick in. So I. I just uh, sort of sat back and became well. Okay, it's all right. I'll I'll just stay as founder, and that and that's the one thing that I have found out over the years is that uh, we've had numerous CEOs, CFOs, CEOs, and whatever, but uh, they can't change the founder. <laughs> <laughs> he, there's one. <laughs> that's it. It's you and Jeff, <laughs> and so you're, yeah, you you right. remain. That's right. We remain so. Uh, and, and that has become more interesting. And then, of course, as you know, as I sort of lying in back there, we get computers and we get smartphones and we get Wikipedia and we get uh, Google, and I read about how Reebok started. <laughs> There's even a photograph of Joe Foster, founder of Reebok. Oh. I don't know. it was probably Joe Foster. He certainly wasn't the founder <laughs> <of it. laughs>
0: wasn't the Joe Foster though. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so we don't know, and uh, so that became quite amusing, and and uh, it, it started that. That was the beginning of the book. Okay, I better I better sort of uh, yeah, there we go. A lot of people had said, "Why don't you write your book, Joe?" But, you know, I guess I needed something to kick me into a <laughs> action. That's <laughs> uh, yeah, It was all right, you know. This is fine, but when this uh, when this came out, it was then a matter of writing the book, which took me a few years and uh, about five different drafts and whatever. And 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 I had a guy read it through. Well, a few guys read it through, and I had one guy who sort of coloured it in. You, know, he's, uh, you tend you tend not to be uh, you tend not to put enough emotion in when you when you first do. You you become more factual and. Uh, and I, I got told, take out the anecdotes. You, know, you, you don't need that. You don't need that. You need this. So, so the story's there, and the, uh, it's how much emotion, sort of. You know, what was your relationship like with your father? You know, these are some of the questions. Oh, well, uh, not too good, really, you know, but, uh, yeah. So, so in order to make the book come to life, you need to get, as much emotion in it as you can do, and really, it is. You know, there's nothing that uh, that is sort of exaggerated. It's just that when you sit down and write, you don't put in those things that uh, you probably you well you do when you when you get to know what you should be uh, how much emotion you should put into these things, and that that helps with uh, with writing the book. So, so- and then.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I was just going to say, we kind of glossed over this, but it was accentuated when you and I had dinner last week, and it was because you saw these fictional accounts of how Reebok started, <laughs> where pictures of people that weren't you, et cetera, like, hey, here's the Wikipedia history of Reebok that was all wrong, <laughs> and so right. that was what, like, spurred you into action to writing this book which was like hey you need to set the record straight and for anybody that's listening to this you know i don't get a dime for this you know we 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 have yet to monetize this podcast but this is a great book uh shoemaker is a great book and yes i've read shoe dog by phil knight it's a very good book as well but i am really drawn to this one and i'm i think i'm really drawn to you as a founder, as an entrepreneur, as a very creative marketer, as a guy that runs to white space, because I can relate to that. And you've got a humility that I'm just super drawn to and and fun. Like you are just a fun guy to hang around. So um, I will just do one more shameless plug. Get this book, Shoemaker by Joe Foster. It's in how many
1: languages, Joe? I think we're in about 10 languages now. Yes, (laughs) that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, I know that
0: um, we are kind of coming up towards the end of the hour. But one thing that I did want to say that I didn't know about when I was listening to you, I was on this uh, in the wings off of the stage with Julie And I said, hey, Julie, are you guys living in Bolton now? Or, you know, are you still in Canary Islands, et cetera? And and she said, well, actually, no, we're digital nomads. And I'm like, what? (laughs) You guys are traveling the world. You sold your place in the Canary Islands. I think that's fascinating.
1: Well, once I can travel, I'll continue to travel. Uh, I think it's all going to depend on age. In fact, next week, we're down in uh, Fort Lauderdale, And there's a big celebration going on for my 88th birthday, (laughs) (laughs) which is fantastic. They put a party on for me.
0: (laughs) You deserve more than one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, why not? Yeah, so we'll have to keep doing this. I have to keep saying I'm 88 to a lot of people, and then we're going to have parties all around the world wherever we go. Um, But that's great fun. So a lot depends on how long I'm able to sort of uh, continue traveling and continue enjoying the travel uh, because – it does get more challenging <laughs> you get a little yeah, older. Sure. Things get a little more challenging. You know, I have a, I have a new hip, I have a new knee, and uh, things like that. You know, if you play a sport, it, it catches up with you eventually. But yeah. you know, it's okay, and uh, we do enjoy our travel, which is, which is good. And and I think that is, you know, when in my early days with Reebok, okay, I couldn't afford for my wife to travel with me, but when when I could afford it, she wouldn't travel. She didn't like to travel. She said it made her ill. And uh, you, know, you, you miss so many opportunities to share mm. some, some incredible things. You know, Going into the palace in Monte Carlo, meeting up with Prince uh, Renier. Where, I mean, these are memories that you know. if you have somebody to share that with, they're so precious. You know, meeting some of these uh, A-listers, there's, there's such precious moments when, when you get the opportunity. So ever since I stepped back, anybody who wants to say two tickets and Julie goes everywhere with me now, yeah. we, we share all the, uh, these opportunities. And it's great. Uh, and now Julie's speaking now, now she's part of global women. And she's, uh, she's also standing up there and speaking. And she usually talks about Reebok. <laughs> and how yeah, we she met. is
0: a great ambassador too.
1: Yes, she is. So, uh, I, I I think we'll just keep on traveling and, and keep on enjoying it, and keep meeting people <laughs> like you, Gary, and uh, and having fun, because it's it, it really is a way of life. You know, you can sit down there. North of England at the moment which is still cold and wet. Here we are, ninety degrees, warm, wow, beautiful,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: great. So, why do we want to be in the cold and wet? We don't. I'm with <laughs> you. You can go do speeches wherever you want to be. That's it. We we could select. We can indeed. We had spent a nice time down in Australia. Wonderful. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was nice and warm down there. And we come back through. Well, we went to India as well. That was nice and warm. I'd never been to India before. so then, And we, we were going to places that really I didn't go to when I was traveling. And now I can see places because I, I used to... Yeah. Fly in somewhere, I would be picked up uh, at, with a limousine. I'd go to uh, the best hotels, uh, it would be the best places for meals and whatever, but I would never see anywhere. You, yeah. So you go to Tokyo, and that's it. I've been to Tokyo how many times? Three or four times. And uh, yeah, now we, when we go places, we, we hope we can do some travel and uh, see some of the nice places.
2: Well, Joe, thank you so much for hopping back on and letting us do a part two so we could get more of your story. I, I know a ton of people enjoyed the first episode, so I'm sure they're going to love this uh, this sequel. So, thank you so much for coming on.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again. So we'll we'll meet Absolutely. up again. Yes. yes. So, so
0: one other thing, Joe, if yeah. if somebody wants to learn more about you, you've got a website. Just recant, or just you know. Not recant, but recall what that is and say that for the listeners.
1: It's Reebok, the founder. Oh. Just a minute, she's telling me. It's JW Foster Heritage. Heritage. Oh, so www.jwfosterheritage.com. Okay, great. You can always okay. look up Reebok, the founder as well.
0: <laughs> yep. And we'll put okay, that great. in
1: the uh, the show note link, or
2: we'll put that link in the show notes as well for you. Fabulous. Thank you.
0: Thank you. You've got 15 more U.S. cities on part of your speaking tour. We're honored to have you in Charlotte be the first one. And uh, hopefully I'll get to see you again on some of those uh, tours. So thank you again, Joe. Anybody get the book, Shoemaker by Joe Foster? The Joe Foster, not Wikipedia's uh, Joe Foster from years ago. (laughs)